This is 50 Feminist States, a road-tripping storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. I'm Amelia Freeby, and this week, we're in North Carolina. From the glaciers of Alaska to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. From the waves of New Hampshire to skies of Montana, I want 50 It's Amelia. Welcome back to 50 Feminist States. We're not starting a new season yet, but I have three very special episodes for you coming out of North Carolina. I recorded these last fall and I'm so excited to finally be bringing them to all of you. The stories that I am going to tell about North Carolina are, I think, so important and so overlooked. One of my dear friends from college, shout out to Ashley Phillips, grew up in a town called Woodland, North Carolina, which according to Wikipedia has an estimated population of just over 700 people. I had been to visit Ashley a few times and was really struck by the community, the community in and surrounding Woodland, as well as Ashley's experiences there. So when I thought about doing episodes in North Carolina, I reached out to her to see if she'd be interested in being interviewed for the podcast and if there were people in her area that she thought would be a good fit for 50 feminist states. She was incredibly gracious and introduced me to so many people that you're going to be able to hear from in these three episodes. Before we get to that, I must say that I am currently fundraising for the next round of travel for 50 feminist states. If you have anything to contribute, please consider finding the 50 Feminist States Future Seasons campaign on Kickstarter. I will link to it in the show notes and you can find it on any 50 Feminist States social media platform or at 50feministstates.com. Your support is what keeps this podcast going and allows me to keep telling stories like these. I really think that the episodes out of North Carolina are going to make you want to hear more stories from women who are so often overlooked by society, particularly the women in these episodes that live in rural areas that I think have really just kind of been, frankly, maligned since the 2016 election. So I'm so excited and honored to be able to share their voices. And I hope that you will consider supporting that work by making a donation of any size that you can at 50feministstates.com support. So we're going to have three episodes out of North Carolina. And if you've ever wished that 50 Feminist States would do its own edition of How I Built This by Guy Raz, today is your very lucky day because I talked to two women who are running one a business and one a nonprofit in North Carolina. And we're going to hear about how they built those organizations, the successes and struggles that they've had along the way, and what it means to them to be business owners and members of these rural, underserved communities. Danielle Baker lives in Roxable, North Carolina, where she runs a company called Baker's Peanuts. Roxable has just over 200 people, which actually makes it the seventh largest town in Bertie County, where it's located. Bertie County was founded back in 1722, and since then it has been a mostly rural county dependent on the agricultural industry. As of the 2010 census, the per capita income for Roxable was just under $13,000, and 26% of the population in Bertie County was below the poverty 
poverty line. We'll also hear today from Caroline Stevenson, who runs a nonprofit called Cultivator in Murfreesboro, North Carolina. Murfreesboro is one of the bigger cities in this general area in this part of eastern North Carolina, with a population of almost 3,000 people. It is also home to Shawan University, which brings in a number of students and kind of keeps, as you'll hear Caroline talk about, the economy of this town alive. Shawan is one of the major employers in Hertford County, which is where Murfreesboro is located, as is a privately run federal prison called Rivers Correctional Institution, a steel mill, and several Purdue poultry processing facilities. These make up the majority of the industries where people can pursue jobs if they live and stay in this part of eastern North Carolina. If you're not from this part of the country, it can be really hard to know what eastern North Carolina is like. We can hear about towns of 200 people and think of these kind of narratives of one stoplight towns, which for the record, if it's a town of 200 people, there isn't even one stoplight. But what does it really mean to be from there and to live there and to commit to living there throughout your life? I'm so thankful to Ashley for inviting me to her home, for introducing me to people that live around her, particularly strong women that live around her. In this episode, you'll hear from Danielle Baker and Caroline Stevenson about the reasons that they live in this area and the work that they do to keep their communities alive. It's a really beautiful and complex story of the choices that we make and how they impact the spaces that we're from. And I'm really honored to be able to share it with all of you. So we'll hear first from Danielle Baker, and I'll let her tell you all about Baker's Peanuts. I'm Danielle Baker, and we are at Baker's Peanuts in Roxville, North Carolina. I've been in business for nine years. I was married to a farmer, and we raised our kids, grew um, crops on the farm, and I worked on the farm. And as the kids were getting older, I wanted to do something a little different. And we talked about a couple of different venues to take and decided um, that we wanted to take a crop that we were growing and run it through the whole process um, from the ground up, from the ground to the customer. So peanuts was what we chose. That was a logical choice. (laughs) And so when we originally started, that's what we did. We were using peanuts that were grown on our farm, ran into some obstacles with that, just with the amount of time it takes to run them through the beginning process. The farming part is easy, or not easy, but the farming part we had down packed, so we'd done that for so many years. But um, the, the process between picking the crop and then having it where we can cook it here, there was some some downtime there and so we ended up having to change our plans a little bit i still use some that we grow on our farm but i buy some from other sources too all local all north carolina products north carolina virginia but um they're not i can't say that they are 100 percent from our farm anymore <laughs> so our our traditional peanut is our salted blister fried and everything we have is a blister fried peanut and all that means is we water blanch them before we cook them um, we cook them in 100 percent peanut oil And so between them being water blanched and having that moisture and going into hot oil, they'll get little blisters on them. So we just call them blister fried. (laughs) So everything starts off as a blister fried, and then we season them. We'll either have salted peanuts. We use a really fine salt on them. Or we use Cajun seasoning. We have a a blend that we made up um, of cayenne pepper and some other spices. So that's our Carolina Cajun. We have a ghost pepper that's really hot and spicy. Then we also have a whole arrangement of chocolate-covered peanuts. We have milk chocolate-covered, dark chocolate, white chocolate, butterscotch, choco scotch, hot chocolate, hot chocolate chili oil added to it so we have a lot of different chocolates that we can do um we make amazing peanut brittle our peanut brittle is um, a combination of a couple of recipes that i had and then we do chocolate covered brittle and 
Um, we have a candy that is our signature candy. Um, we make our own caramel here, and we chop peanuts and mix it in that caramel, and then cut them out in circles and dip them in chocolate, and it's amazing. They're called Better Bites, and <laughs> they are they are very good. So yeah, we have those are the, the Better Bites, the peanut brittle, and our salted blister fried are like our top selling items. After hearing all about the peanuts and Baker's Peanuts, I asked Danielle if she could share a little bit about what it's like to be a business owner. Very challenging. Things always look really good on paper and reality will come sometimes just kind of take that piece of paper and tear it all to pieces because it never works out the way it looks like it should on paper. It just life challenges happen and building the business, um, you have great plans, great aspirations, great thoughts of how it's going to work. And you have to really be able to think quick and be very flexible because things happen quickly. And one, it's a domino effect. When one problem happens or one issue comes up, it causes a trickle-down effect. I've enjoyed it. It's been great. Uh, I feel like I've given back to the community, but it's it's a challenge. I mean, it's, it's in, in being, I think, being a woman and being an entrepreneur, you have to separate your feelings and um, put things into compartments. Um, and that's, that's kind of difficult for me, it is. Um, I'm a very people person. And so sometimes having to do business and not people is difficult. And there's there's a happy medium there. And finding that, reaching that happy medium um, can be challenging, but you've got to do it. And um, and I learn that all the time. I'm constantly, whatever you, whatever you do today doesn't mean it's going to work tomorrow. And I had a teacher or professor one time say that we were talking about making business plans and said a business plan is a living, a living, breathing item. And it is because it changes daily. You might make a plan today and three weeks later, it's, you're going to have to go in and change it. So you have to be able to be flexible. And, and when, when I started this business, um, a lot of life situations have happened. And when I moved into this building, um, I was at a, a point, I was at a fork in the road and I could have gone anywhere. I didn't have to stay in Roxville. And there are days that I wish I'd gone somewhere else just because it is such a small rural town, but this is where I started. This is where my roots are. The people here have been good to me. And most of what we do is, is in the wholesale business, so we send it out on freight trucks um, so we don't depend on walk-in traffic. We get a lot of it for out here, but but I was at a place I could have left and gone somewhere else and done the you know had this business somewhere else, but I chose to stay here. I just felt like giving back to the community um, – was what I needed to do. And it's, it's where we started. Staying in Roxabelle and serving her community was really important to Danielle. So I asked if she could share a little bit with us about the ways that Baker's Peanuts serves that community. Um, one is jobs. The, the job force around here is um, we, don't, we don't have a lot of jobs to offer. 99% of who I hire are women. And a lot of them through the years have been, I've hired students who are putting themselves through school. I've hired um, single moms who are the sole breadwinners for their family. Right now I've got three ladies that either they or their husbands are going through cancer. Um, so it's, it's, we build a community here. The jobs, the, the, having the women or the, the girls that come in that are working might be their first job and we give them a chance. So those are things. Other ways that we give back, um, we're very involved in our community individually and as a business, trying to just kind of keep some things in Roxville. We've formed a, a community service group here and we use our 
our place here is kind of like pivotal point for some things that we do. We also do like Angel Tree, Bertie County, um, collecting gifts for kids, things like that. We try to do any kind of civic organizations if they're having events or something. We'll try to like donate a basket or do something like that that we can. We don't have a lot of money that we can give people, but we can you know make a nice basket and that helps us too. It gets our name out there a little bit more as well as you know, helping with fire departments do the same thing. If they're having a raffle or something, we'll donate a basket to them. And so it kind of goes hand in hand with with what we're doing as far as trying to to give back to the community. Hearing how hard Danielle works to give back to her community and to make the best peanut products for people up and down the East Coast, I asked if owning a peanut business had always been her dream. No. (laughs) No, never, never. Um, Even even on the farm, um, I never, I, I used to tell people, you know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, if somebody told me that this is where I'd be, I, no, this is this was not on the radar at all. And it started off small, and um, and we almost didn't do it just because there's so many peanut companies in our area. And so when I started, um, my plan was to market outside the area. I wasn't even going to try to hit local people um, just because there's so many good peanut companies. And um, so I, I did a lot of traveling, spent a lot of money traveling around, and then it just hit me one day. I've got people here in North Carolina that are buying from me. Why am I spending so much time going elsewhere? And I've learned, I'm very good friends with several of the peanut companies. And we, we laugh and joke and say we're friendly competitors. And we are. Um, we all do something a little bit differently. And we all have, you know, we complement one another. And um, there's times that we you know, have to call each other up and ask them, you know, ask a question or we've borrowed things back and forth a time or two. We don't try to steal business from anybody. Um, we just try to, to work together and there's enough business out. I had a, a friend of mine when I first got into business, he has a, a peanut business up in Virginia and um, he was great. He let me come in. He showed me what he does, showed me his setup, told me anything he could help me with, he would. And, and he has. And he told me, he said, there's enough business for all of us. We're all small guys and we got to you know work together and there's enough out there for everybody. We don't have to, you know, be worried that we're going to steal somebody's business. And that always stuck with me. I appreciated that a lot um, because in business, sometimes it's very cutthroat and I never wanted to be that way. That's, that's not my personality. And um, so knowing that these other people, you know, we've got a good networking of peanut companies. <laughs> I wanted to wrap up our interview by hearing a bit more about Roxable, both what keeps Danielle there and what she loves about the place. The people are friendly. It's just a great country feel um the people are very friendly laid back um people i've had people come here and say well where do you go to the store i said everything is 20 miles from me um you know and actually that's not a bad thing you know for me i like the farm um the outdoors not having the congestion of even a hosky or murfreesboro (laughs) um you know those are big towns compared to us but um i tell people you know i drive i drive to greenville once a week um, to get supplies, pick up things, and that's okay with me. You know, I'll drive an hour to keep it from being in, in my yard, you know, to give me the space that I have here. So it's just, it's it's not for everybody, but it is um, relaxing. You know, at night you can go out and it's quiet. You don't have the noises of the city. Um, and it's just, it's, the any, any place that you go, any small community especially, people always laugh. You know, if you don't know what you're doing, ask your neighbor because they know what you're doing. <laughs> Um, and there's a lot of truth to that, but it's good at the same time because people are watching out for you and people, people are people and they're, they're funny and, um, 
they might get on your nerves, but when something happens, the community comes together. And we've seen that time and time again here. Somebody gets sick or um, somebody's house catches on fire or, you know, somebody's going through an issue, the community comes together. And that's, to me, that's what's important at the end of the day. I think this reflection is so lovely and really emphasizes the beauty of many rural communities, particularly these communities in eastern North Carolina. But of course, that beauty comes with its own struggles and rural communities across the U.S., specifically here in Roxable, face many of those struggles. So I asked Danielle what she thought about the future of Roxable. It's hard to say. I mean, we need, you know, we have to look at it either. Are we going to grow or are we going to stay like we are, go in reverse. And most of the time, things don't stay as they are. They're either moving forward or moving backwards. Um, unfortunately, our community has moved backwards a lot. Um, as I said earlier, we've lost all of our businesses in town. Um, we're here. We have the post office that's open for about four hours a day. But that's about it. And that's one of the reasons I stayed here was I thought maybe by having this business here, and we, and as you saw in the store, we have our products. We also have consignment things. So there's people, local artists or local jewelry makers or bakers or whatever that'll put stuff in to sell, and that helps us. It fills up our store. So when people do come, there's more for them to look at than just our peanuts. And then it gives these people that do this side items a place to sell. But I was hoping that you know we would be able to do something to bring some life back to Roxable. Not so sure that we've done that, but we, we try. This conversation about trying to bring life back to an area to rejuvenate its people, its community, its culture is a hard one. And it's one that I also had with Caroline Stevenson, who runs a nonprofit bookstore and community center in Murfreesboro, North Carolina. I met Caroline during a trip I took to Woodland at least two years ago, and I was really struck by the work that Cultivator is doing to try to support and bring literacy to Hertford County. While I was at the bookstore, I got to talk to her a little bit about her choices to live there, to raise her children there, to have them go to public schools there. And when I thought about 50 Feminist States, she was one of the first people that I knew I wanted to interview because the conversation we had had years before that just struck me as such an important reflection on the way that our personal choices are political decisions. And of course, the personal is political is one of the founding, you know, feminist slogans. So I, when I went back, when I went to Eastern North Carolina to do interviews for 50 Feminist States, of course, I wanted to talk to Caroline. And we couldn't connect while I was there, but we were able to do an interview over the phone a little bit later. So hear Caroline talk about her work at Cultivator now. Well, it really started after my mother passed away in the fall of 2014. She just had a huge book collection. I was lucky enough to grow up in a house with a lot of books, and she read a lot. We all read a lot as kids. And after she died, it's like, wow, so many books. What are, what are we going to do with all this? It's, it's a lot of books. Where do they go? after her passing away. So in 2016, so a couple of years later, I just said, uh, you know, Murfreesboro needs a bookstore. So this is a small town in northeastern North Carolina. It has a population of about 1,500 people, but there's a university located there, Chowan University. You know, there is some, some traffic in Murfreesboro compared to a lot of other towns in eastern North Carolina. Um, you know, we still have a somewhat intact Main Street and, you know, we had plenty of empty storefronts. So it was kind of like, what if we took an empty storefront in downtown on Main Street and started a bookstore? So that's 
that's what we did. So we opened in August of 2016. The idea was uh, that it be a community space. So that was part of it from the inception. But also, you know, it was about creating greater book access. Being a bookstore was its primary mission, I would say. But also, you know, we have art uh, by local people to, you know, as an outlet to display and sell their goods. Because, you know, there's no real art galleries here, or there's not a lot of art or creative space here at all. So it it was always meant to be a creative space, but also for, you know, promote a space to promote literacy, a space for community building. So that's initially what it uh, was started for. And then it has kind of grown into something, something more and different and better, hopefully. <laughs> as Caroline mentioned, Cultivator started as a bookstore and has become so many more things to serve its community. I asked if she could share more about her personal journey towards starting Cultivator, because I knew that Caroline had grown up in Murfreesboro, but left for many years to live in Boston, Chicago, and LA. Hear her talk about the time she spent away from Northeastern North Carolina and what brought her back there, as well as what it's like to live in a place like Murfreesboro, understanding both what it's like to feel stuck somewhere and what it's like to leave. I grew up in Murfreesboro, so I I lived there and, you know, went to school there through high school. And as many young people who grew up in a small town, you know, I could not wait to get out of there. I was like, these people are so small minded and there's just nothing to do. And I'm just, you know, you feel so stuck. So I did go to Boston University and then I transferred to Columbia College in Chicago and got my um, film degree from there. And uh, then I lived in L.A. for almost 20 years for a really long time. Uh, But, you know, I always in between, I always went home and home has always been a very special place because my family has, the majority of my family has remained here, you know, and family is very important. So after I had my own children um, in LA, I just, you come to the realization, where do you want to raise your kids? You know, do you want to raise them in this hustle bustle where I'm working 18 hour days in LA and somebody else is raising my kids because I'm always at work. So um, my husband and I moved back to Perford County in 2010 because um, we had a farm that has been in our family for a hundred years was just vacant. Just nobody was living there. My grandmother had passed away and her house was empty. So, you know, here's a almost 200 acre farm where my kids could, you know, grow up on versus, you know, living in a a tiny, you know, duplex east of of Hollywood. So it seemed like a no brainer. I mean, obviously, northeastern North Carolina, like a lot of rural areas, people can feel and are sometimes very isolated from the outside world. You know, Raleigh, Um, which is like two hours away. Sometimes going to Raleigh feels like you're going to Hollywood. It's so, everything is so fancy and, you know, new. And, you know, they, it's like, you know, everybody looks rich and drives a great, you know, a nice car. So it's being in a rural area, your choices for a lot of things are just very limited. So we decided to open the bookstore also just 
you know, uh, books can expand your mind and they do expand your mind so that, you know, even if you're stuck here, so to speak, you know, you, you don't have to be stuck here in your mind. So, you know, a book can take you anywhere. One of the things that I remembered from my first conversation with Caroline was her discussion about public schools in Hertford County and the roles that schools play in these communities. I had also learned about this by watching a documentary my friend Ashley suggested to me called Raising Bertie. One of the important things to know about Bertie County, where Danielle is from, and Hertford County, where Caroline lives, is that these counties are both over 60% African American or Black. And I have to reflect on how both of the women I talked to in this episode are white. Race obviously plays an important role in shaping the consciousness and culture of these communities. Caroline also reflects on that when I asked her about her choice to send her children to public school, even though many white families in the area send their children to a private academy. Hear her reflect on that choice, as well as the role that Cultivator plays in collecting Black history in Northeastern North Carolina. I'm a huge proponent of public education. My kids go to public school here, despite uh, the fact that it's still a dual school system, basically. So our county public schools integrated in 1970, which is already very late considering Brown versus the board was in 1954. So sad, but true. But also in 1970, like a, a basically a private academy was formed in the county. So uh, many families chose to send their children to the private academy as opposed to having their kids stay in the integrated public system. So, you know, my kids do go to public school here and my kids are going to be fine in terms of their education. You know, I'm not worried about them, you know, being able to, you know, get into a good college and having a good career. My biggest concern, frankly, is children that go to school with my children who don't have educated parents. You know, I have a master's degree, so does my husband. You know, we're working professionals, you know, who are well-read and well-traveled. And, you know, many of the parents that the kids, my kids go to school with, you know, they are not as privileged, frankly. You know, they um, may or may not have finished high school. They may or may not have gone to college or completed college. You know, a lot of them have incarcerated parents. A lot of them have are raised by their grandparents. A lot of them move around a lot. You know, my daughter talks about like, oh, so-and-so moved. And then, you know, then this other child moved in. So there's not a lot of security in a lot of the households of the kids that my kids go to school with. So I want my kids to be in public school to be in reality. Public schools have to educate everyone. You know, they're not segregated from one group or another group. So is it the kind of education that you're going to get in Cary or, you know, in Chapel Hill? No, it's not. But, you know, frankly, I think, you know, that they're almost going to be better off in a way because they're going to know this is real life. And, you know, my kids, my kids are a minority in the public school here. You know, obviously, Hereford County is a is a predominantly African-American county. And the schools also reflect that. You know, when I went to public school here, it was the same. And it just taught me how to get along with people, how to be in every situation, you know, how to how to react and how to respect people. Um, you know, but the main thing, I think, because we are a predominantly African-American county, you know, 
uh, my kids get to participate in that experience. And what an incredible experience it is to be part of this great culture of Black culture. And that's why, like, Black history for me is, you know, a lot of the work that we do at Cultivator is collecting documenting and preserving Black history, which that's kind of odd for a nonprofit bookstore. However, part of our mission is education, so it kind of fits in that. But also it's about telling the story of this incredible town and these incredible people, and that is a story that's been completely ignored and overlooked and hidden for far too long. So it's more than Black history. You know, it's about being proud of the incredible accomplishments of these people who, during these awful, treacherous times of slavery and Reconstruction and Jim Crow, you know, were successful and did amazing things. One of those people is Hannah Crafts, who was a woman born into slavery in Murfreesboro around 1830, who escaped and traveled north as a fugitive slave in the 1850s. She went all the way to New Jersey and wrote The Bondswoman's Narratives after gaining her freedom. On many accounts, this is the first novel by an African-American woman and the only known novel by a fugitive slave. Her story is one of many stories of Murfreesboro, the kinds of which Caroline is talking about wanting to preserve. As I wrapped up my interview with Caroline, I asked if she could reflect a little bit more on Murfreesboro and the state of the community there, as well as its future. Because we, you know, like many rural counties, we've lost population over the years. You know, people leave and they don't come back because there's no opportunity. Unless, like me, you're, you create your own opportunity, you know, but that it takes a special kind of hard-headed person to do that. <laughs> so you know, I, like every place, there are are great things and there are things that are not so great. And, you know, like everywhere else, you know, you have to make the best out of it. Is there a lot of residual racism? Yeah. Does it mean that we have to continue to accept that? No, absolutely not. Are the public schools great? No. But does that mean that my kids have to go to an all-white private academy? No. So again, you make the best out of what you have. So uh, if there's no bookstore, you create this space for not intellectuals or elitists, you know, but you try to create a space where everyone feels welcome. And we sell a lot of religious books. We sell a lot of DVDs, you know, are those things that I thought would we would sell the most at a bookstore in Murfreesboro? No, but that's what people want. So we try to um, get people what they want. I don't know. I'm still very hopeful about rural areas and about small towns because I still think there's incredible opportunity here, but you have to be out of the box, you know, and you, you can't just come in and think there's uh, a lot of money here. You kind of have to create your own economy, so to speak. But, you know, there are incredible stories and incredible people who just, you know, it's sad that we're so invisible often to the rest of the world, particularly women here. Uh, and I, that I don't know how to change. We have no women on our board of county commissioners, and there are very few women who hold um, off, like public office in the county. Um, and that's disturbing. And, you know, it's the 21st century, but I'm, I'm not sure how to fix that. <laughs> if I could, I would. <laughs> I don't know that any great change or shift is going to happen in my lifetime, but hopefully the work that I'm doing, you know, will pave the way for somebody else to, you know, keep moving, trying to keep moving 
forward here, get it moving us into the 21st century, so to speak, and beyond. But I just do what I can because I feel like it's the right thing to do. I really appreciated this reflection on the reality of gendered roles in the community and the lack of women that have political power there. To conclude our interview, I asked Caroline if she could share one of the things that she's most proud of, of the work that she's done with Cultivator. We have given away thousands of books in, you know, two and a half years. So that I'm really proud of, you know, even if enough people don't come in and buy books, you know, that's fine. We have, you know, four free book boxes in the county and they're pretty much empty on a weekly basis, which is great. Somebody's taking them and they're going somewhere. So that's good news. Hopefully down the line, somebody will say, you know, yeah, there was a free book box at the park. And when I was a kid, I looked forward to going there every week and getting a book. If you'd like to support Cultivator, I'll link to their website in the show notes, and you can donate books and money to support their cause. I'll also link to Baker's Peanuts, and you can order delicious, wonderful peanuts and butter bites from Danielle herself. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of 50 Feminist States. If you'd like to support this work, you can pledge to support our Kickstarter by going to 50feministstates.com slash support. Any amount that you can pledge is greatly appreciated as we seek to raise $7,000 to keep further seasons of the podcast going. This podcast takes a lot of work, but it tells such important stories. Pledging at 50feministstates.com slash support is supporting stories like the ones Caroline mentions, the ones that are overlooked, that are forgotten, that aren't considered. Considered. The work I'm doing with 50 Feminist States is to listen to those people, hear their stories, and share them with others. So if you'd like to support that work, please go to 50feministstates.com slash support. That's F-I-F-T-Y feministstates.com slash support and pledge your support in our Kickstarter today. Next week, I'll be back with another episode from North Carolina featuring my dear friend Ashley and her work as a writer living in Woodland. Until then, I'll see you on the road. Cincuenta estados feministas Cincuenta estados feministas Thanks for tuning in to this episode of 50 Feminist States. You can find show notes at 50feministstates.com slash podcast and follow us on Instagram at 50feministstates. Special thanks to Danielle Sines and Jessica Neria for our theme song. Until next time, wild ones, we'll see you on the road.